Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome to 1033. This podcast was created in an effort to create community connection and conversation around mental health. It was originally created by a first responder for first responders. However, the lessons learned through life experience transcend these roles. Join us as we aim to reduce the stigma around mental health and create a safe environment for you, the listener, to reflect on the journey as others share their story. The success of this project is a result of the direct support from the listeners and from corporations. This support directly translates to increasing the quality of the podcast that I am ultimately able to provide to you. I would like to take a quick moment to hear from our sponsors who believe in this project. CanaConnect's mission is to empower military and RCMP veterans on their holistic journey to wellness through community, conversation, and medical cannabis education. CanaConnect is committed to providing opportunities to engage with supportive communities across the country at their wellness lounges from coast to coast. Drop in any time to grab a coffee, meet their team, and enjoy fulfilling conversations with like-minded people. CanaConnect understands that healing requires a holistic approach, which is why they put so much emphasis into connection and the community. CanaConnect leads with compassion and care to ensure that everyone in the community is able to learn, heal, and thrive while working to end the stigma around mental health. Thank you to our sponsors for continuing to make this project a success. Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. Today, we have a special guest with us, Sam King. She is a clinician that does therapy out of the East Coast. I'm told that I should call her a psychotherapist. It feels very abnormal to use those two words together, Uh, but she does a phenomenal job. She's currently on leave, but she has been attached to and doing some amazing work at the OSI Clinic, the Operational Stress Injury Clinic. These places are phenomenal. I've been there. They do amazing things for our first responders, for people who have gone through trauma and who are wanting to get back to a more healthy place. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for the introduction and thanks for having me. An absolute honor. I, I would, season three is going to be phenomenal. Like we have all of these amazing people, these people behind the scenes that help piece, you know, people like myself or others back together, the pieces of the puzzle. Uh, when things go into full-blown crisis mode, get thrown on the floor, flipped upside down, some get thrown outside. I mean, the puzzle is just, it's impossible to put back on your own. Before we dive into that though, I'd love to hear kind of your your pre-story prior to 2018. What what where were you in life uh, prior to OSI Clinic? Bit of a long story, <laughs> um, but yeah. So again, my name's Sam King. Um, she her pronouns. I'm a therapist working in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, my background is a registered nurse as well as a registered social worker with the college both colleges here in Nova Scotia. Um, and basically kind of how I got here, the very Coles Notes version is that um, I've already always wanted to work with um, either youth as like a sexual health nurse in like a high school or um, as like a guidance counselor, or like a mental health um, nurse or a psychologist even. I knew that from very early on. I just was kind of always the person like 
at those like high school parties who'd be like in the bathroom with someone like thrown up or having a panic attack supporting them. So like, I, I just really felt good helping others. And, um, you know, I, I come from like, you know, a pretty grounded, like kind of upbringing where there were, I'm fortunate enough to not have a whole lot of chaos in my life. So I'm, I find I deal with high pressure, um, intense situations very well and kind of bring a calming presence. And so I kind of just wanted to go with that. And I also was always really curious about like kind of how humans human and like how we work and think and both from a, a psychological as well as a, you know, biological and spiritual perspective. So I kind of looked into it when I was in high school. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of was daunting to take on like the average 10, 11 plus years to become a PhD psychologist. So I thought nursing would be a good route. I was also always into like travel. Um, so I thought maybe like travel nursing could be an option, like going up north or, uh, you know, traveling internationally and stuff. So I went to St. of X and I did the four-year program in 2000 or 2010. Yeah. Yeah. 2010. And I graduated in 2014 and then immediately, like right away, I've worked in mental health in pretty much every setting you can think of residential inpatient, um, in the ER, um, outpatient, you name it. I've probably worked there. Um, the only place I haven't worked is like a jail basically. Um, and I did do a few shifts there just like as part of my orientation. So you've named it. I've probably worked <laughs> in that area of mental health and I just love it so much. Um, I worked kind of in like a smattering of inpatient residential treatment, um, from 2014 until 2016, um, mostly with adolescents and kids. So, you know, people under 18 and families. And then I it was kind of enjoying that role of nursing. However, thought I could kind of push myself more to be more of the primary clinician, so to speak, versus, you know, kind of a secondary support in groups and stuff. I was usually kind of the person that would like maybe kind of de-escalate people if things went sideways. Um, so, yeah, there was a positioning uh, opened with adult mental health just in the community, working with like, you know, anyone in Halifax that, you know, needs a therapist that's not employed by like, you know, the police or the military or they don't have coverage through their work or whatever. Um, and yeah, I've been like full-time plus therapist ever since. I saw pretty much every presentation over the sun. A lot of people, um, you know, with trauma, of course, um, psychosis, spectrum, uh, mania, gender and sexuality concerns, just a whole mix of presentations. I've been doing both individual and group therapy um, since then. And yeah, it was just kind of my curiosity about the military and the RCMP and wanting to learn and, and understand more about trauma specifically that kind of led me to the OSI clinic when I saw there was a posting for a therapist there. And so, yeah, I do work with, uh, you know, first responders and um, also a lot of healthcare professionals. I see a lot of physicians as well. Um, and just, you know, general people who are interested in, you know, learning more about themselves. I do a lot of insight oriented work, um, helping people understand how they came to be who they are, looking at their past and their families. And uh, yeah, now I'm distracted by your cat who's <laughs> climbing the wall. But yeah, that's basically sums it up. The the star of the show right now is actually not myself or Sam King. It is my 11-week-old 
ragdoll cat named Luna, who is currently smashing something in the background. Uh, <laughs> this is life. Now, for you starting out in life, realizing that you were very drawn to people, you were very drawn to serving, to helping. And I think so many of us that are drawn to this space really do start out knowing kind of this is probably where we're going to end up. Now you wear kind of two hats. You're a registered nurse, but you're also a clinical social worker. So you have a very unique perspective now as you're coming into the OSI world and you're starting to learn about what does trauma look like as a Mountie or military or first responder. And you're now starting to help some of those individuals maybe grow from wherever they're at in the various stages of PTSD or mental health issues. Now, when you first walked into OSI, what was your experience like? Hmm. It was definitely a huge learning curve. Um, I'd never worked with the military um, or police part of that, just because, you know, most of my clients wouldn't have access to their own coverage. That's why they were seeing, you know, someone kind of funded by the public mental health system because they couldn't afford to pay for their own therapy, which can be quite costly. Um, And so it was a huge learning curve. I totally like went into it with like the assumption. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, like uh, military veterans and police. Oh, it makes sense. There's definitely a lot of overlap there. They're probably very similar. And then like just that diagram that comes to mind. I can't remember what the name of it, but it's like, you know, the more you know, like the more experience you have, the less you realize you know. That was like totally me where like I'm a year in. I'm like, oh, my God, like what have I gotten myself into? Like I know nothing. I just need to like read every book and like, you know, interview every person I can uh, to like best serve these, uh, you know, very highly regarded people. Um, So yeah, it it was a lot of extra work on my own. Like um, I've already like seen like a lot of like movies and stuff, you know, like everyone's seen like Saving Private Ryan and Black Hawk Down and The Wire and stuff like that. But I'm like, you know, what's actually like relevant and what's actually pertinent. So I was kind of trying to do my own like filtering of like, you know, this is maybe like my bias and like preconceived notions and like also my own like kind of interactions with like police and like military and stuff like that, that you kind of want to filter through to be, you know, non-judgmental and um, kind of going into it open-mindedly. So everyone, you know, you can relate to them and provide them the best care possible um, and such. However, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And we are fortunate at the OSI clinic where we're funded separately from where I was working before in the, in the public um, mental health system. So we're federally funded, but provincially staffed. So I don't like work for the military or the RCMP. I I still work for the province and the employer um, as well as private practice, of course. But um, yeah, just the training that we received was super helpful and really relevant. However, there was no nuance uh, to like, you know, special populations during the training, or maybe like a brief mention kind of at you know the last day where everyone's like kind of checked out <laughs> death by PowerPoint. I'm sure you know what that's like anyway. Um, so yeah, it took a lot of experience and a lot of time in like willingness to develop that kind of cultural sensitivity to the differences between those kind of three um, referral sources and, and types of people that we would um, see at OSI. And I definitely am by no means an expert and I definitely do not know everything at all. Uh, you know, there's still stuff I learn about the, the kind of the deeper nuances, especially when it comes to the RCMP. There's just like so many layers to 
those clients that we see and uh, yeah, just kind of taking all that in and kind of making all those connections and making a treatment plan and, and trying things out. And there's just not a whole lot of research, let alone when it comes to police officers and mental health generally, but like, especially RCMP officers, there's like none. I think I found like one research study in like 1968. And I know one of your guests, I'm not sure if I don't, I don't want to like reveal who they are, but I know he's going to talk a lot about a very important study that he's doing to like better understand um, what the Mounties need in their mental health and stuff. So I'll just leave it at that. But, but yeah, it was like a lot of like figuring things out and trial and error and, you know, um, extra, extra work on my own time to like buy books and read books about, um, you know, kind of the nuances behind like police psychology and culture and military culture and veteran culture and what's around and what resources there are and how it works and, you know, uh, what, what the codes and the lingo and the acronym means. Like there's a lot, it's different too, between like, you know, military and, um, you know, police and, you know, there's this culture in the Navy and there's this culture in the combat arms and, and, and air force. And there's like this, like competitive nature in between everyone and it's a whole thing. So, so yeah, that's kind of my first initial, you know, kind of first few years, take um in a nutshell of like wow like there's this is like super super deep and there's a lot of things that I need to um you know do better at and understand in order to serve these people in the best way so I guess when you started out your journey with OSI and I'll I'll dive back to a quick statement here about OSI there's going to be a lot of people that are listening to this and they don't even understand what OSI is OSI is an operational stress injury clinic that is specifically set up for first responders now I went through this clinic uh, I believe in 2015 as a first responder was diagnosed with PTSD in 2014 started serving in about 07 quickly knew there was issues but there's such a huge gap between being able to reach out and get the proper supports to getting to a place where, okay, now you're realizing that we're further down the road of trauma and the impacts are very real and very serious. And now you're now reaching out for help through an operational stress injury clinic. There's a huge gap there, which needs to be closed. Of course, there are therapists out there in the world, i.e. psychologists. But as we get into first responder work, I mean, there are so many hurdles we throw in front of ourselves to keep ourselves away from getting help, or being able to have that vulnerability to vulnerability to express ourselves and put our hands forward and say, Hey, I need help here. Like I'm not doing well. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times, I don't know if this is true or not, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I'm sure a lot of people that walk into the doors of the OSI clinic are probably much further down the road than they actually think they are as far as how well they're not doing because of their their post-traumatic stress. Do you agree? 100%. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I would say Again, uh, I don't I don't have data, but we actually have a research and statistical officer who compiles all this data and will send it all the way up to um, the Minister of Veterans Affairs and the Prime Minister of like, you know, who we see, the demographics, uh, the rank, et cetera, of like clients. Um, but yeah, more often than not, my clients would, it, I would be like their first therapist. Um, and that compared to my prior experience in, uh, you know, community-based services, was like night and day. Usually I would see someone who may have had like, you know, at least one therapist, probably even like two or three therapists or, um, you know, this therapy and that therapy. And then it's kind of a process of elimination to figure out, all right, where are you at now? And what do you need? And what do you know? And <laughs> what do you not know? And um, yeah, a lot of people are coming in. They're like, yeah, what's this mental health thing? Or, you know, so common to hear, I 
have coped with the trauma or with stress my whole life by staying busy and do, do, do and go, go, go. And, and I like go, go, go. However, now that I don't have that same degree of go, go, go and that same adrenaline um, propelling me <laughs> to go, 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 um, I'm having a hard time with a lot of really painful memories and emotions or maybe lack of emotions, which is really scary, especially for my um, my wife or my my spouse or my my children. And that's really overwhelming. And so that is like a really common rhetoric that we see um, for a, like an average client at the OSI clinic. And there's no shame to get to a point where you cannot <clears throat> experience positive emotions. That's a very normal symptom of post-traumatic stress. Uh, I think, unfortunately, too, for a lot of men and women that end up with PTSD, and again, PTSD is very common from the world of the first responder. You throw on the boots, it's most likely you're going to go through a mental hardship at least once in your career. It's just a matter of what. Now, if we accept that as is and move on to where you're walking into now into the OSI clinic and you're having this experience where you're sitting down with, say, Sam King there and you're trying to un unwind that yarn that's been bundled up and gnarled and just in so many different directions, it's going to take a long time to get yourself to a place where you can even know how to express yourself and what you're going through. Most likely, you're probably going to be going through mental health issues at the time. This may be the first time that you're going through it. And how do you equip yourself to be able to sit down with Sam so that you can use the right words to express yourself? And I wanted to hear from you, Sam, if you see a lot of patients coming in that sit down and they just go, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know how to talk, let, al let alone feel. Yeah. And plus, it's like really scary. I think for a lot of folks, um, maybe people who are listening right now that are still in or maybe even, you know, your, your ODS or whatever, um, the thought of like meeting another person, let alone a civilian. I don't know. Maybe that makes it easier. Maybe that makes it harder uh, in sharing some of these really vulnerable, hard feelings probably makes you want to run away and start a new life. <laughs> I think a lot of people are like, mm, no, I think I'm good. And I think that like, I'm fine. I, I call um, fine, F-I-N-E. It's an acronym. It stands for fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. And I think a lot of people kind of tell themselves that for a while because yeah, therapy is super hard and scary. And people just kind of white knuckle it for a long time. And then they come to see me and it's like, Oh my God, they're, they're, if we had them hooked up to like biofeedback or like a heart rate monitor, um, which some of my clients do joke at me, they're like, yeah, right now, like my Fitbit's telling me to, to, you know, keep it up. I'm in the fat burn zone because their heart, their pulse is racing uh, when they're like, you know, doing something in terms of like processing or, or what have you. Right. And um, yeah, it's like really, really unnerving to sit in the chair and, uh, you know, to, to go over all, all those pieces, um, especially someone that you just met. So how do you guide that person that comes into the OSI clinic <clears throat> that is slightly unaware as to really where they're at in this moment? You strike me as the kind of person I've known you long enough that you're going to be very gentle, but yet you're going to apply some pressure where needed to at least nudge them forward so they don't just get to sit there and tell you the story that I'm fine. Totally. Yeah. So what I tell like all new clinicians, um, because, you know, I should mention this part of my role, 
at the OSI clinic as a supervisor, I'm, I'm the clinical team lead there. So part of my role is like, um, you know, orienting new clinicians and making sure they have the training that they need in the education and like, you know, working with them on their learning goals and stuff. I tell everyone um, that orientation is key. So whenever I go pick the person up in the waiting room and we do that long walk to the office, uh, I, I call it the, uh, the, the longest yard. <laughs> That's just like this awkward, like, you know, walk to the office and walk out um, that, you know, we sit down and, you know, I tell them, you know, what, what you know, hey, like, this is who I am. This, these are my intentions. And this is kind of how today's going to go. Um, these are the social dynamics of therapy, because, you know, it's just such a different relationship and different atmosphere than, you know, outside, you know, I tell people that I'm going to interrupt them. And it's not because I'm trying to be rude. It's because they may say something that's just so important that um, I want to learn more about that. And hey, guess what? You're welcome to interrupt me too. This is kind of how this works. Like, so I kind of t- orient them to all the dynamics and of course, like confidentiality and privacy and the limitations of that and all that good stuff that many people already know as police officers or firefighters. Um, and I tell them like, hey, like if there's too much heat, like you you can tell me like I, I am and I am also very difficult to offend and I'm a nurse and a social worker. So I've pretty much like heard everything. So like, don't feel like you need to like filter stuff like I'm. I'm good. Like, I'm happy to be here. Um, Don't sugarcoat anything. And by the way, if there's any questions that you don't want to answer, then that's okay. Like, you're you're kind of the boss here. You're hiring me as your therapist, and I'm here to uh, to help you. So we can go at the pace that you're comfortable at. And if you need to, like, go out for a smoke or, like, take a break or if you want to, like, take this, um, you know, mental health convo, like, outside to walk around the building, like, well, give her. Like, no problem. So just kind of making sure that people – um, know what to expect. They know they can leave. They know that it's is voluntary. They they know they they're consenting. They know that they can pass on any questions they're not ready to answer yet. You know, it's like their first their, their first time in therapy ever, and they've waited like fifty six years for it. This is big, and um, yeah, I think giving them as much power and control as possible is really what I aim to do, and um, make it a kind of collaborative conversation versus like an interrogation situation, which nobody likes. I even like turn my lighting down because my lighting in my office, I find, I don't know why this is, but every like mental health office, the lighting's either like operating room or go home. So I usually kind of dim the lights and have like some lamps. So it's not like anything similar to um, policing or interrogation or anything. So we just kind of go at their pace. And I, I feel like, um, I don't know, just maybe my natural kind of skill I, I or like, and also things I've worked on, I'm, I'm pretty good at reading the room. And so I, I kind of just call things out and see them be like oh, okay I noticed that like you know you, you kind of pause there like are we still good like do you want to do you want you know do you want to circle back to this like I'm just here to to help and to learn about you at the pace you're comfortable at so that's kind of how I try to set things up for the for the individual that's obviously starting to recognize that <clears throat> they're shifting uh their approach to life is shifting the way they're feeling is shifting whether that's a lack of feeling or or just harder harder emotions that just seem to not be the right ones for the situation. The people that are out there that are obviously starting this journey into kind of recognizing that things aren't going well, but they're not yet at a point where they want to walk into OSI. Like, what is the advice you have for that group? Mm. I guess I would want to know, like, what's getting in the way? Like, it, like what's the what's the threat? And maybe you like do a pros and cons. Like, okay, like so assuming that you have the information, like maybe you maybe need to like kind of find out more about like what therapy is about, or even like what, what are the offerings at the OSI clinic or how do I, I get there? Um, 
And so once you kind of have that info or you figure it out, like, yeah, like, what do you think would be the benefits of, um, you know, getting therapy and improving your mental health and, um, you know, maybe working with a team and yeah, what would be the potential cons of that? You know, benefits are you, you know, maybe you'll be able to feel emotions again. You'll be able to actually enjoy, uh, you know, aspects of living that maybe you feel like you can't connect with, you know, you, you and your partner may be able to kind of get back that thing that you had when you first met. Um, maybe it's going back to work because, you know, we see lots of people who are still serving as well. Like what, what are your goals and what's your why? Why would you ever do something uncomfortable like therapy? Um, and also what's your why for uh, staying miserable or potentially making things worse? And so I think that would be my um, best advice to like, if you're kind of like on the fence um, is to kind of yeah gather the information, gather the facts, and then kind of really kind of look inside and be like, well, what do I want to get out of this? Is it just because this mental health thing is, you know, kind of popular right now? Or do I actually have a goal in mind? Do I actually have a, you know, a life that's, worth living or a life that I kind of want to get back to and reclaim um, what's like, what would my motivation and having that insight at the beginning would be like huge. Or even if you're like, Oh geez, Sam, like you lost me. I don't know. Um, well then I'm here to help you figure that out. And maybe that's what you get out of therapy and that's it. Like just because you started, doesn't mean it's like a, just this ongoing, like, you know, season of survivor <laughs> that it just goes on forever. Um, you know, you're welcome to leave or, you know, ask to switch therapists, even if it's not for you. Like this is, it's a, it's a very collaborative, um, you know, gray process. It's not black and white or like rigid, like it is maybe in like the military or police system. Like we're, we're like therapists and mental health is generally very flexible to meet the client's needs. And like, we don't judge people if they're decide like, you know what, like I've heard about this whole EMDR thing and I am not down <laughs> what other options you got because there's other options or you know maybe now it's not a good time for me just given the level of commitment or my shift work and that's okay you know there's other great programs that people can do on their own time or kind of as needed that can also help them meet their needs so sometimes that's just a big part of what I do as well is just helping people name what's happening with them so they're less afraid of it because the more you know the less you fear and give them some options like a buffet of, you know, in terms of your mental wellness and psychological health, like where, like, where do you want to go and what's your goal? And it's kind of what you have to do to meet that. So that's a big part of the assessment piece. Knowing that OSI obviously is there to support uh, not just civilians, but also first responders as well as is extremely important. I didn't really recognize this until later on in my own journey with PTSD because mm. I didn't really know it was out there. Uh, and that that's my own story. <clears throat> I'm glad now I can podcast and talk about, hey, there's this beautiful avenue of support called OSI where these amazing people go to every single day and they're literally waiting to meet you at the doors to show you the support that you deserve to help you come back and heal from whatever it is you've gone through. Now, <clears throat> there's always going to be those those internal pressures of, oh, I'm not ready, or there's that internal denial of, I'm not really there yet. I, I can go a little bit further, right? And there's also external pressures too. And some of the ones that I experienced was this fear of stepping forward as a Mountie, a big, strong Mountie and saying, hey, you know what? I need help here. I'm not mentally doing well as a result of the things that I've gone through and fearing that, you know, what's going to go back to my employer? Let's talk about kind of how OSI were, were kind of more geared towards the patient uh, and maybe some of those concerns that people may have about things getting back to the employer are actually not there. Mm, 
I say to some extent. I wouldn't say that they're entirely not there. It, it, it depends on who is referring. So, like, obviously, if you're coming from Veterans Affairs, then there's, you know, there's no, nothing's ever going to get back to the RCMP or D&D because you're not associated with them anymore. Um, with with D&D, it all depends. Usually the referrals that an OSI clinic would get from D&D would be from people who are on a PCAT, which is a permanent medical care category, essentially, which means they're kind of like, they're on their way out of the military. So they're kind of preemptively sending a referral. They've been working with a therapist or team like on base, um, for example, CFB Halifax. And the mental health nurse or psychiatrist is sending the referral to the OSI clinic kind of like as a transfer of care in prep for like them releasing from the military. Um, so in, in that case, there might be kind of some back and forth, like with the person's consent, of course, regarding like, okay, here, this is what we're seeing. Like, you know, this is how we're going to collaborate and like bridge care for this person um, until they kind of get here at OSI. Um, when it comes to the Mounties, uh, again, I've only ever worked at an OSI clinic in Nova Scotia, which is H division. And so it seems to me based on what I've heard from members and veterans that it can kind of depend per health services department at headquarters, um, how much contact there is, you know, some departments, I guess, are busier than others, or, you know, are more involved than others. And there's different cases that may be more high profile than others. And they they may have more questions or want like some sort of treatment plan. Um, And then sometimes we never hear from them. Um, So part of the informed consent would be, hey, if you are um, active duty or you're, you know, you're on a four or a six, you're ODS with the force, um, you know, you are consenting for us to exchange personal health info with the health services department of the RCMP, not your, not necessarily your, your boss or your direct supervisor, but, you know, because they are paying for the sessions, they kind of want to know, like, you know, how many sessions do we're going to, like, maybe what, like, what's the general kind of content of the session, you know, are, in terms of, are you doing CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? How, what was the response to that? You know, are you doing a group therapy, like dialectal behavioral therapy group? What's that like? Not necessarily the, the nitty gritty of all the trauma details, because none of us would put, ever put all that detail in a report. However, it's a bit of a overview of like, you know, hey, like, how's this person doing? You know, what kind of supports they need? And then that they may use that to kind of inform, um, you know, any kind of um, modifications or adjustments that person needs to their duty if they're on admin leave or or what so it's not that nothing gets there however um it's we we also don't like release a whole person's chart it's, it's all kind of in discussion and collaboration with the person and so knowing that is key uh, in terms of deciding whether or not to go to an osi clinic or any therapist because even though you may have so many sessions with blue cross for example you're still going to need that authorization anyway from health services so you're going to get into that position regardless of where you go Absolutely. Something you definitely have to think about. Uh, But I will say too, investing in your own mental health is always a plus. Uh, This should not be a reason to not step forward and go get help, even if you are not at a place yet where you think you need to do it, but starting to question, you know, why are you feeling this way or not? Uh, Now, some of the modalities that you talked about uh, that happen at the OSI clinic, incredibly important. Uh, The ways we treat PTSD is always changing. Mm Mm-hmm. We're always learning how to better treat this. We're gaining a lot of information. Uh, And one of the things that's going to happen with you is like you spoke about earlier, Nick Carlton, Dr. Nick Carlton, 
we also have him as a guest on this season. And he's talking specifically about the studies that they're doing currently to better understand post-traumatic stress uh, in the RCMP and first responders and figure out how do we come at this? Because I think for a long time, we've been kind of throwing darts at the dartboard for many people trying to figure out, okay, how do we treat this with this person? Do you want to quickly talk about the complexities behind treating PTSD as well? And quickly? Yeah, real quick. Real quick? Oh my God. We real could quick. do we could do a whole episode on this. So like I'll probably start rambling, so please redirect me as needed. But um let's just because you're a police officer and I'm sure there's probably more police officers than other populations listening to this, let's just, just talk about policing because there's different levels to the RCMP that I've ever I've never seen before in any other population, really. Um so First, even just kind of looking at the case conceptualization of a person, basically understanding all the aspects of their identity and their narrative of their life, factoring in their police work um, in that organization and just the pandemic and everything. And also the fact that it's probably, again, not everyone, but probably their first time to therapy and they may be like, you know, 40 plus. We do see some younger members in like their, I'd say like the youngest Mountie I've seen was maybe like in their very late twenties, early thirties. So they've got all this life experience and then all this policing experience and it's their first time therapy. There's just so much to unpack. And I, I appreciate how in your episodes you've talked often around, um, your personal experience in therapy, um, a lot of people have the experience in that, you know, they're coming in, they've been referred, they're willing to go to get help, they're, you know, in a really dark place, or they can kind of feel things starting to spiral, and they're they're ready, and they're willing to do whatever it takes. And their focus may be um, direct, what we call criterion A, in the DSM-5, which is the manual we use to diagnose PTSD and other mental health conditions, um, which is, you know, violence, extreme violence, life-threatening, hearing about it, directly witnessing it, it happening to you, like this big, scary, big trauma. And we know that's a big part of your work. And, you know, I mean, officers are resilient. And I think a, a big part of us gets desensitized to a lot of that stuff. However, there's always some calls that may stand out more than others. And maybe that's the focus of what may kind of motivate someone to get help. The last straw, that that just call that you cannot get out of your mind and haunts you. And or on top of that, there's all this um, really complex layers of just like being a modern day police officer. Um, I've, I've seen Mounties who, you know, they... They're, they're in their 70s now and like things were very different when you signed up for the RCMP in like the late 60s, 70s. For one, there was no women. <laughs> and for two, things operated very differently with like social media and media in general, etc. Um, you know, and it is just so hard, as you know, to like do your job, um, which is like heart wrenching and takes a lot of skill and experience and like uses your brain like you know in in all different sections of policing whether you're doing general duty or um you know special investigation or or anti-terrorism or whatever you're doing bomb disposal it all takes a lot of skill and brain power and and, and, you know sometimes physical power Um, but then they have that under a microscope by the media 
or people in your community, like your neighbors, uh, seeing, you know, people that you have arrested going out. That is like a whole other level of like complexity that's kind of just thrown in there um, that needs to kind of be unpacked and addressed um, that, you know, civilians like I was working with before would not have. And that, that is really, really hard, especially um, with the, you know, defund the police movement and um, all, how all that kind of comes in. And police officers are often vilified in the media and they're just a very misunderstood group of people. And so that is a lot to unpack combined with a lot of people um, like you mentioned in your journey that you had, you didn't really realize because you were kind of distracted by all that stuff that maybe there was some adverse childhood stuff that kind of came out and you kind of learned with your therapist, how that kind of all was intertwined. Um, that is also not uncommon. It's, it's very rare that anyone kind of gets out of childhood unscathed not that not that everyone has like you know deep dark childhood trauma however there's just like stuff that happens when you're a kid that like you don't really pay attention to or notice sometimes and that can all affect how one regulates their emotions and also relates to other people and so that's a big factor and a lot of people get into the force or the military because um you know they they maybe they had some adversity and they want to um help others they want to you know kind of protect and that's not a bad thing at all it's just a very noble thing. And it's, it's something called an enactment um, that we talk about a lot in therapy. And then combining that piece, the whole family stuff with this um, kind of dynamic in the force of the RCMP or military family. And not that that's a bad thing at all. However, that can be really complicated when it's your workplace, but it's also your family. And maybe you don't really have much of a family or maybe you do, but like sometimes you kind of have to choose between your families and that's all really complicated. So there's a lot of levels <laughs> to unpack with a client as a therapist um, to kind of help understand what's at play, what balls are in the air, um, what the person wants, and how far they're willing to go um, in terms of formulating a treatment plan and picking these modalities that are evidence-based and choosing with them um, kind of what to target first, what's most pertinent and what's most um, what's kind of causing and pushing up the most distress right now that we can address. Um, so it's a lot. I think too, for a lot of us, we don't recognize, and this is a very normal phase of the journey that a lot of our trauma that we experience as police officers is actually directly linked to either the childhood trauma that is there, uh, within or those ACEs, those adverse childhood experiences that are woven into, uh, how we interpret the world. And the, the analogy I always use is, I'm glad you touched on this, is the yarn of trauma doesn't just begin and start with your policing or first responder career. It usually goes back to the beginning of time. And being able to unwind that whole piece of yarn start to finish is going to promote the best amount of awareness or healing. And <clears throat> absolutely, I mean, it, it's a very tough pill to swallow that all of a sudden at 30, 40, 50 years old, we have to look back and go, okay, I guess my childhood wasn't that great. How do I find peace with it? How do I move on? How do I understand it so that I can see how I'm using it as a lens now to look through to the world and how is it impacting me? Mm -hmm. Good and bad. Yeah. And that can be just, oh, that can be just devastating to so many people when they get there and, and reach that realization. Um, that, yeah, you know, maybe I told myself and minimized things that things were good for, yeah, like you said, 
47 years and now it's just hitting me now about what transpired and how not okay that was and that can create some really complicated um you know themes and emotions to kind of uh hit up against collide and hit up against each other to resolve um and, and in therapy we're very equipped to do that um and and just so people know like i don't want to like people be scared about coming to therapy and be like oh wow i don't want to do that i don't want to i don't want to realize that my childhood um sucked or whatever and like hey like please know that i don't get into that with everyone um it, you you may choose just focus on one aspect of your identity or your osi and then be done and like that's totally your choice and it's a it's probably a good choice i tell people all the time that therapy is like a relay race you know we work together i do a lot of education and we kind of do like a little bit of a warm-up in the beginning where like you know i know trust is very much earned and not given especially in this population um where we kind of get to know each other a little bit and we kind of get a little bit comfortable as comfortable as you can be and then we learn some skills and then we kind of build up to um meeting your goal in one way maybe it's processing a critical incident for example that occurred and then you walk away after that intense course of treatment and you're working on some stuff that I suggest. Maybe it's like setting boundaries or maybe it's um, not sitting with your back against the wall everywhere you go. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're working on something. And then when you're ready, um, you come back and then we look at where we're at and we take another puzzle piece and we put that in. And then we work on that for a little bit. And then same thing. You walk away feeling better and then you come back. And so it doesn't have to be this big, scary, robust thing. We just take it day by day and we just work at the pace you're at. And then, um, you know, you may realize two years down the road of like, yeah, I've done like two years off and on of therapy and like, I'm really glad I did. And I am, you know, just so much evolved and changed because of it. Uh, I've know so much more and understand so much more, not just about myself, but about others too. And I can have more compassion for myself and other people. And that can make all the difference. Absolutely, I can. The driver's seat that you sit in when you enter into therapy is largely, it revolves around where you're at in your struggle. And you really do have the control over where this goes. And the beautiful thing about uh, our pain and suffering or our struggles that we have in life usually are a very good indicator of where the body or the mind is trying to take us with what we need to deal with, whether we need to heal from uh, a certain event or talk about something that has been bothering us for years. Most times we know nine times out of 10, maybe even 10 out of 10, where we need to go. Sometimes we hold ourselves back and we try to run away from those places. But when you can allow yourself to experience it, and this is where the hard work comes in, when you allow yourself the ability to experience this stuff, this is where the healing is. But you have to cross that bridge first. And the beautiful thing about OSI in my experience was that the amount of support and compassion I received walking through those doors to just be me, be broken, to flounder around for, you know, the better part of six weeks, sorry, six months while I tried group therapy, because I actually had to learn how to speak about this stuff first. And you do that from watching others and that's a really important part too of this journey is in the beginning you're not going to know how to talk about your ptsd you're going to have to learn so how do you do that you got to watch somebody else who's much further down the road how they talk about it so you can go okay this is either a part of my story or not so the beautiful modalities that are there i mean not only are you putting someone in the seat and saying hey how do we help you but hey why don't you go get connected to some people that are going through something very similar and they know how to talk about this stuff and you can just sit back and watch 
and take whatever you want in and just let it go where it needs to go. That's the beautiful thing about OSI. Now, for you, you, you've gone through a very challenging time. Mm-hmm. Port of Peak, Nova Scotia. I'd love to hear what that did to the community and what you've seen at OSI as a result of the, the horrible tragedy that happened. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So trigger warning, <laughs> ensure you are regulated before um, listening because, um, you know, obviously I'm probably going to say some stuff that might get you a little bit fired up. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was just, there are no words to describe what that was. It, it was shocking. It was traumatic. It affected, I think everyone, um, you know, I don't think that anyone could have been prepared for what happened. And I think the aftermath uh, was also really, really re-traumatizing for like a lot of people. And I just, you know, feel so hard for so many people involved, whether it was, you know, the first responders working that day, um, obviously the, the, you know, the, the victims' families and their friends and the community, like, just horrible and like devastating and just like already being in this really confusing and maybe even like really scary time for people of like COVID just starting up and like us being like, what is, what even is this? Is this like even real? And like, we're working from home or some people may be laid off and just like all that like chaos to have that terrible rampage occur was just like, Oh, it was devastating. And yeah, like, People are obviously with, you know, trauma and grief and traumatic loss, like that just doesn't go away. I, it, it's like you have this jar and the jar is your life and you have this ball with spikes on it, probably that's the trauma or the loss. And every time that ball hits the glass, there's pain, maybe even suffering and all this stuff comes up and that ball doesn't go away. Your jar just gets bigger and expands. And so there's been lots of, you know, obstacles for people, um, whether they were um, in the community or maybe they know someone who was affected or responded, or maybe you're um, one of the first responders or the spouses or the families of those first responders that went um, to their recovery just with, you know, how, much has emerged and in this time of like, you know, social media and digital and um, there's, you know, the mass casualty commission ongoing um, that brings up a lot of stuff for people. And it, it, you know, some days people tell me are, you know, are, are good and they, you know, kind of have some flickers of feeling themselves and the other days they're reminded, or maybe a new article pops up with more information or evidence or, um, something or other related to it. And it just is like a tidal wave and, and grief and trauma can just feel so bottomless at times. And yeah, like I hope, I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do it justice, the impact, but that's kind of my, um, you know, thoughts on just try, attempting to describe um, a layer of what that was like for people here. And oh my gosh, I just, feel for the, you know, the families and, and like the, the, the Mounties and just everyone in the families who were, um, you know, directly impacted by that, like so hard. Um, and, you know, we, we did what we could in terms of trying to mobilize and make mental health supports 
available for um, families and first responders at the OSI clinic. We we had basically like a um, rapid response service where any member or family member could call our office directly or even could just call our kind of mobile crisis line that we have in Nova Scotia, which is like a, a mobile team of clinicians and police that go out to respond. And they also do kind of um, phone calls as well. And they would uh, dispatch or kind of coordinate the call to our clinic. And then we would talk to them and, and may, then maybe set up some sessions with them to kind of help. But, you know, just when something so shocking takes place and just like the background of everything and, you know, um, people are, I would imagine, afraid of like, okay, I want to make sure all my notes are right and documentation because I, you just sometimes like, I mean, I, I did work um, in, in forensics and you just know when something's going to go to trial and you want to make sure that's done. However, you're also trying to like, you know, <laughs> process and like deal with like what just happened. And so we didn't get like a whole lot of uptake for that. And, you know, um, it eventually was, was stopped. Um, and so, yeah, it's it, right now we have people coming forward um, for the first time since that. And um, yeah, it's it's just heartbreaking. Um, I have a friend who um, her husband is, uh, you know, was one of the, the first responders that day. And, and you know, they're, they're still, um, you know, grieving and processing and working through a lot of things that are coming up from that day. And yeah, I just have so much compassion and love and respect for um, our police officers and, and paramedics and just everyone that was involved. And I just wish that our world was a little less dichotomous and black and white and thinking and could just kind of remove that layer of anger and blame to really kind of connect and come together after just something oh, so, so terrible happened. Beautifully said, a very hard uh, event to capture in words. Uh, and I'm, I'm <clears throat> struggling right now with my own emotion on that. Uh, again, very triggering to hear even just conversation around what everybody had went through when you put them, when you put yourself in their shoes. And I mean, the, the impacts of that are going to be uh, felt for very long, four years to come. The healing process is going to be very slow. And I am grateful that you are there, Sam, to help the community along with where that needs to go. Uh, very thankful that you are that person that is there. I know the the quality of service you bring to those people. So thank you. It's hard. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's an honor, really. Like, even, you know, before... Um, Port-a-Pic, there was Moncton, and that that's not far from where I live either. And, you know, uh, we had HDIV, um, RCMP respond over there as well. And then, you know, before that, there was Mayerthorpe, and before that, there was Swiss Air, and there's all these huge tragedies that I am just so grateful to hold space and to witness um, with these just incredible human beings that who, you know, sacrifice so much to protect us. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm humbled every day by their guts because it's extremely courageous to do the work you do and to be a police officer or a paramedic. And then it's even a whole other level of courage to share what that impact is in therapy or, you know, even like you do on the podcast, like, when I heard that you were doing this, I didn't even know who you were. I was like, what? This is amazing. I like jumped for joy because I hear so often and it's just so sad how 
in such a big organization or, you know, what's supposed to be the RCMP family, how alone and uncomfortable people feel with sharing and connecting with their brothers and sisters. And so anyone who was affected by any of those terrible events, I just want you to know that, you know, I have not forgotten and we have not forgotten about those things. It's not always easy to talk about or to bring up. It's not really a, you know, a conversation starter or something you want to bring up at a party, but please know that, you know, those experiences are still valid, even if they happened 20 plus years ago. I heard something in therapy one time that Mounties first responders are such a unique breed of people. They oftentimes have no fear. The only thing that they do fear is their own emotion. And I didn't recognize the power of that statement when I first started therapy, but that's exactly what I feared most in my life was my own emotion from some of the hard things that I had went through as a, as a cop. And we're going to switch gears a little bit here as we wind up this interview. I want to shift into a place of positivity and I want to hear about the success stories that happen at OSI. Yeah. I, there, there's so many. And like, like I, I know that, that again, like you're like, let's shift into something positive. Like, okay. Like that was a, obviously it's like a heavy episode and stuff, but like, um, I, I don't want people to think that like my job or like any therapist job is like depressing or like traumatic or whatever. Um, because it's, it's not to me. Um, when I'm sitting with someone, I'm not like reacting or reeling from the trauma that's shared. I'm just like, yes, you're finally talking about this. Yes. This is what like, let it out. Like, this is where we have to be right now. Like I, I'm just like, you know, really, focused and inspired and humbled by their guts and their courage and they're showing up in helping them recover. And I find like the cool thing about being a therapist, especially in like maybe a small community or when you work with police officers, obviously you're going to like have clients that like know each other. There's, it's a matter of time, you know, you know, Manitoba or like Nova Scotia is only so big um, or like Nunavut. So you're going to, run into people who, um, you know, there might be some overlap in the circles and you kind of get to watch from afar um, or even just um, from me taking in these experiences and me learning and being a more competent therapist and, um, you know, using that knowledge to help others. Basically, everyone's like healing each other. I'm kind of just like the vessel, you know, I'm like using everything I've learned from, all my other, you know, uh, Mountie clients or veterans and using that to uh, help others. And so when you go to therapy, you're not just helping yourself. And that might sound kind of corny, but it's so true. It it has a ripple effect. And, and group therapy, like you said, group therapy is amazing. Um, <laughs> please note that if that also makes you want to run away and start a new life, you don't have to do that right off the jump. However, it is uh, really, really valuable for all the reasons that you said and more. Um but yeah, like it's just such this like powerful, heartwarming career and you see people come together and recover from trauma, this, you know, terrible thing that should never have happened. And yet um, police officers run towards all the time and become, I don't want to say heal, but become, you know, um, more evolved and more connected to themselves 
than ever before and other people. And so some of the big transformations that I see at work are around, you know, just sitting with feelings and not running away from them anymore. Kind of like you mentioned, having the tolerance to do that and honoring and respecting yourself enough to do that. Because although it's perfectly understandable and a common coping strategy to want to avoid, um, that can lead us to really disrespecting ourselves on both a, you know, physical, um, cognitive, spiritual level. Um, Hearing someone say that they're proud of themselves or that they um, accept themselves for the first time is just such a powerful transformation. And we see that all the time. Um, It takes a lot of work, of course, to get there, but like that is just such a huge win. Um, And there's no win that's small in therapy, especially when it comes to PTSD and trauma, but it's, it's just, wow. Like, so even on days where I'm like, you know, sleepy, maybe I stayed up too late, like watching (laughs) the show or, you know, whatever. I just feel like so uplifted when I meet my clients. And I, I mean that like genuinely, like my, my clients just, they inspire me so much and I just get so much out of the work I do. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily from coming from a session where it's like, ooh, like big win or big transformation. Even all the, um, you know, interim intermediate sessions where people are um, working uh, very hard and sometimes even want to get up. You know, the fact that they showed up and that they're keeping going like that is just I'm like, oh, yeah, like <laughs> this is this is why I'm here. And so I really love my job and I feel really um, grateful that I get to do it um, all day. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just such an awesome vibe, uh, at the OSI clinic and, um, with any client really, not just police officers or, um, veterans. It's, it's just so, um, powerful. It's, it's hard to even put in, again, it's hard to put into words, like, um, how transformative, uh, the work I do, is uh, not not you know not just for clients of course but but for myself it's it's really um, helped me realize just the common humanity that we all have that you know you may be this you know big like you know macho dude um, but we all have feelings and we're all sensitive and if you say that you're not sensitive then come to therapy. <laughs> We will hold that door open for you to walk on through it. One of the things that I've learned and I absolutely love is before with post-traumatic stress, I used to look at it as a curse. I remember when I first got diagnosed or was diagnosed, I should say, I very much was grateful for this opportunity to now understand the devil that I was dancing with. Because I just didn't understand how to move with all the struggle that I was going through. When I had finally learned, I thought, okay, at least I know what I'm dealing with now. I can start to, to move from this space. And there definitely were moments where I didn't enjoy having PTSD. I can honestly say that. But now while I'm in the journey of post-traumatic growth, I can actually hold gratitude now for having had these experiences, having had left policing a little bit early, because it actually has formed me into a much healthier human now as a result. Crashing and burning is not necessarily a bad thing. The phoenix tends to rise as a result if you let it and you do the hard work. And that's where the beauty is in this story. The post-traumatic growth that happens beyond the PTSD is 
the beautiful chapter that happens next if you let it. Now, Sam, I want to thank you for coming on today and telling us exactly what OSI looks like, what your perspective looks like from your seat, and how you've helped people navigate some of those difficult waters. Obviously, this is a huge conversation to have. We not only talked about OSI, we talked about the impacts of Porta Peak. We talked about all of the different uh, issues that might happen to us in our lifetimes, going back to our childhood experiences with ACEs. We even covered a lot in 58 minutes. Like oh you gosh. are a rock star. I think we should have you back. And like, we haven't even talked about sanctuary trauma or moral, moral injury. injuries. We like, like, yeah, there's so much I could, I could say. Um, I think this is a, I think we did, we did a pretty good time for a, a light intro, <laughs> not light in terms of the content, but light in terms of, uh, you know, uh, just giving an overview, <laughs> scratch and surface. Well, I have a strong sensation and feeling that uh, I think I'm going to invite you back with Luna the cat as well as our honorary silent guest in the background. Uh, So if you'll have that offer, I will gladly have you back. Sam, but I do want to say thank you to you for doing what you're doing. You are the right person in that role. And I can honestly say that you have impacted many, many people, none that I am aware of, but I do know that they are there. So thank you for what you do. You're welcome. And thank you for what you do. Before we go, and I love to always close off the episode this way, what is your one piece of advice to that one person that is wherever they are in the journey? Hmm. I didn't know you were going to ask that. I didn't know you were going to ask any of these questions. So um, one piece of advice, uh, don't kick the puppy. Many people have, uh, you know, in their life had a pet. Maybe it's you with your kitten or maybe you've had a puppy before. And whenever you try to train the puppy, uh, what do they do? Do they listen right away and respond or are they like at cadets at depot or are they kind of like all over the place? It's a little bit of a shit show. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That. And so when you're embarking on this journey or even if you're like, uh, I'm still not buying this therapy thing. I'm just going to do me. Um, Please just try to be mindful of the times in the day where you are kicking the puppy. You know, when you're telling the puppy that they're no good, that they're never going to amount to anything, that they're a failure, that they're not good enough. All these types of things that we say to ourselves um, that are just putting more suffering on top of the pain and the complexity that we already got going on living in this like post-COVID world um so please remember to not kick the puppy the puppy is you be kind and gentle to yourself at minimum try not to feed into those thoughts even if you don't know what to say just be like all right i'm just gonna stop kicking the puppy and i'm gonna go for a walk or i'm gonna focus on my task queue or maybe i'm gonna turn this around and write myself a positive 1004 i don't know like (laughs) whatever you're gonna do um just please don't kick the puppy and just watch how your world changes if you let go of that one unhelpful uh, behavior.